Hello guys, warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales one-person true crime show, complete with a hairy football himself, Peaks, that seeks out to recount for your listening the cases that often aren't at the forefront of a casual enthusiast's mind, the often unfamiliar or long-forgotten tales of darkness from the far corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you such tales is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are you guys, the wonderful enthusiasts of the show that keep me doing what I do. It's fabulous as ever having you here joining me today and I hope that as you're doing so, then you and yours are all good and you're all well. So as I speak, bloody lockdown is upon us, or most of us anyway, once again eh? I'm sure, like me, that you're all sick to the back teeth of it now. Whether you think it's necessary or it's overdue, whatever, we're all in for a bit of a bad one with it over the next coming months, I sadly think. And it's going to be a rough time that we've all got to ride out. I know it's a gloomy outlook, that, but we will get there, guys. We will do, I'm sure. Now, because I've been under the weather a bit myself over the past few days, not with COVID, nothing... I've decided for the episode this time around to once again change the planned one that I had in mind because I've just really not felt up to the researching. Now I do chop and change things around quite often don't I? Strange times, what can I say? And so I'm reaching into the back catalogue of the show's Patreon episodes to bring you a selected tale which we'll get onto shortly. I am back on form now though, it's just been a rough couple of days. On the subject of Patreon, massive thanks out this time around to both the returning and new supporters of the show, with shoutouts here going to Lee Jackson, Guy from Camel Towing, absolute best name I've heard in a long time that one is, Katie Loftus, Stephanie, Josie Robinson, Claire Hildreth, Dominic Lester, Michelle Corrie, E. Woodson, Joanna Banks, and Christy Wall, Amy Cohen, Myrna Herringer, Faraday Hartman, Sarah Hall and Chantel who have each opted to become annual supporters of the show. Please remember to pass on your contact details to me for a bit of a thank you package for doing so guys. And apologies if I've said anybody's name wrong there. Now it's so kind of you all for supporting, thank you so much and I know I sound like a broken record because I do say this each time but it does mean the world and I hope that you've all had a chance to catch up with the Patreon bonus episodes, the ones that I've not shared here on the regular show. I know that I am using one of them here today, but it is a somewhat rehashed one. I have like worked a bit more on it, so hopefully it might seem like a fresh listen to those who've pre-heard the tale in this episode already. And there are still some 20 bonus enthusiast tales that haven't seen the light of day yet, with the latest, The Mystery of Leatham Street, released just a couple of days ago. If you guys out there want to join these folks and get yourself extra tales such as Sanctuary or the Bravo 2 Heroes, Ripper in the Making or a Lonely Death on Gun Hill, perhaps even get some show swag from me, then like Daredevil having a nose through a grumble pamphlet, it's not hard at all and it's cheaper than a nest full of birds to do. You just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the show on there or there's a link to it right with the show contact details in the episode show notes each time. Boom, yeah, that really is all there is to it. Once again, I'd also like to remind that CrimeCon is coming to the UK in June next year down in London, and I'll be in attendance there over the whole weekend. 
where I look forward to meeting loads of you guys should you want to come and say hi of course, with plenty of scope for us having a scoop or two, talking true crime and putting the world to rights, which it proper bloody needs doing, when it's bound to by that time isn't it? There are still some early bird tickets on sale right now, and by using the unique code ENTHUSIAST on the order page, you can get yours at a nice 10% discount. Plus, if you've done that and you get in touch with me, then I'll make sure there's a bit of TTCE swag awaiting you at the event, because I'm nice like that, it's all about the giving, isn't it? A link to the CrimeCon site for you to do so can be found in the episode show notes. So as I've said, I'm using a bonus tale this time around, and although they're usually not as long as the regular show episodes, nor are they as empty of content as Piers Morgan's Charisma Meter. I do put the same amount of effort into researching these as I do the regular show, and each tale always works out just as long as it needs to be. The one I've selected from the show's back catalogue is from a bonus episode that I put out earlier this year, and features a chilling tale that I came across while I was researching a different case from the last series of the show. It wasn't a story that I'd ever come across before, and when I read up on it further, it had show episode written all over it, so I earmarked it for a later date. Then it came to Patreon, and right now, it comes to all of you guys. For the episode, we head back to the mid-1980s, and to a city we've visited several times before on the show, the city of Birmingham in the West Midlands. The tale looks at how one man's very specific, unhealthy obsession built up over time, until he was to eventually make his greatest fantasy come true in the most awful of ways, resulting in the macabre, horrific death of a young woman. Now if that doesn't sound bad enough, then it's entirely possible that a visual reminder of this may still be out there somewhere, hidden away, to this very day. Grim thought indeed that isn't it. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so as ever please use discretion as always whilst you're listening in guys. Bearing that in mind please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at a case that I've entitled Enough Rope. In today's world where you can pretty much watch anything online, from your YouTube to your TikTok bollocks, and sorry but it is bollocks that, I'm sure there are still several oddballs out there who will still go to any lengths to see the deepest darkest fantasies on screen. Today it's probably been replaced by the dark web as there's a massive underground market in things such as this, but going right back to the start of the 1980s, the decade where our tale takes place, this was done with under-the-counter video nasties. People have always loved watching simulated murders on film, haven't they? It's why the horror and thriller genres are still as successful and popular today as they've ever been. I'm sure we've all seen them. I grew up myself watching all sorts of horror movies long after there had been a bit of a cull, and stuff like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Evil Dead and The Burning were all banned for several years. These and others like them considered video nasties for the horror that they depicted on screen. Now I got to see these and others like these because I used to spend a lot of time with my older cousins who were well into stuff like this and the local video van man, do you remember them guys? 
used to come around and who had copies of all sorts of stuff like this if you asked him. We all had a misspent youth back in the 80s where I'm from, what can I say? So although I saw loads of what were classed at the time as video nasties as a youngster, I always knew that they were just films. But occasionally, there'll be of course someone who goes way too far, and a filmmaker decides to dispense with all simulation or special effects, and creates what is known as a snuff movie. Now if there are those listening who've never heard that term before, and you aren't sure what I'm on about here, Well basically a snuff movie is a film in which any death or abuse depicted on screen is genuine, a person is actually murdered, commits suicide for real, or is genuinely sexually abused on screen. These films may or may not be for financial gain to the filmmaker, but are films that are supposedly, I quote, circulated amongst a jaded few for the purpose of entertainment. If you can't find anything on Netflix, of course. Fuck's sake, eh? Now, thankfully, it's a rare occurrence that films such as these come to light. It's not something you want to imagine, really, is it? But they still do exist, and especially with production technology being as it is today, there must still be plenty of weirdos and deviants about who will seek out viewing films such as these and pay a decent price for them, however hard to come by they are. I'm sure they find ways around it. Bear that in mind then. The advert that was placed in the newsagent's window read, Regal gowns, film and fashion, require young lady for part-time modelling, experience not necessary, apply Mr G Jones, 16 Eggington Road, Hall Green, tell 744-9006. Hall Green is a district in the southeast area of the city of Birmingham in the UK area of the West Midlands. Home to less than 30,000 people at the last count, famous names to have hailed from or lived here include comedians Joe Lycett, or Hugo Boss I believe he was briefly known as recently, Tony Hancock, whose catchphrase up the bracket, and this is my favourite wiki stat that I found for the episode, was used by Hancock fan Pete Doherty for the title of the Libertines' debut album. And what a fabulous album it is to it. Proper up there for me. And J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote a couple of books telling tales of fictional creatures, mystical jewellery and a massive walk. Not really my thing at all, that. The whole green area was also home for many years to Geoffrey Graham Jones, who following the death of his mother, lived alone at number 16 Eggington Road in the district, an unemployed, unmarried loner and massive film buff who'd placed the aforementioned advert in a local newsagent's window. Not just somebody who sat in the house watching old movies all day long, Jones had for several years had a keen and active interest in actual filmmaking itself and had progressed this interest further by becoming a member of a local filmmaking society through which he wrote scripts and made a series of short films, proper having the Spielberg bug and hoping that one day he could do this as a full-time career. And whilst it's true that Jones was capable and indeed did make a series of short films, there was more chance of me growing another hole in my arse than in becoming the next Martin Scorsese, for the scope of his imagination was limited, far too limited actually, because throughout all of the scripts or the film ideas that Jones came up with, 
three things were always prevalent. The focus of the film would always be a young woman. She would always be depicted wearing a black satin figure-hugging dress, black shoes and seamed stockings. And in each film, she would be put in some form of immediate physical danger, either underneath the wheels of a train or a bus, or by a hangman's noose. Over a number of years, beginning from the early 1980s, Jones had on several occasions advertised successfully for models to take part in films that he'd thought up involving themes such as this, and had previously filmed several girls dressed up in mock peril as described, operating under the name of Kit Arden Motion Picture Productions. By April 1985, the former insurance salesman, dress hire proprietor and cinema projectionist was still advertising for models to star in his productions, and on Thursday the 18th of April 1985, his handwritten card in the newsagent's window caught the eye of a 16-year-old whole green girl named Marion Terry, who couldn't believe her luck. Recently left school, unemployed and desperate for a job, Marion was immediately attracted by the advert, as the location was less than a mile away from her home in Hall Green's Coal Valley Road, and making a note of the number, Marion called Geoffrey Jones when she got home and arranged to go around to Eggington Road for an audition later that afternoon. Just before she put the phone down to Jones, he told her, Remember, wear something black. Marion, excited at the prospect of what could be an inroad into a possible career that she'd never considered, put the phone down jubilantly. By 3pm that afternoon, she'd excitedly made the short journey around to Eggington Road, dressed in her smartest outfit, a white blouse and jacket, complete with black pencil skirt and heels. But sadly, a modelling career wasn't to be on the cards for Marion. In fact, nothing was. The next time she was seen, at 8.50pm the same evening, was by police officers and paramedics, summoned to number 16 Eggington Road. The householder, Geoffrey Jones, was by that time in hospital, having taken an overdose of aspirin, and Marion was still in his house, hanging by her neck from a rope that was attached to a beam of wood in the loft opening. The tips of Marion Terry's feet were left just slightly touching the ground, and there was a piano stool on its side behind her. The rope had been professionally tied in a hangman's noose, complete with a quick-release-end failsafe mechanism that was fastened to the adjacent stair banister, but this had not been pulled. Marion was dead, hanged by Geoffrey Jones. Just over a year later, on Monday the 21st of April 1986, the four-day trial that opened at Birmingham Crown Court, presided over by Justice Sir Joseph Cantley, told the jury of eight men and four women the entire bizarre story that had culminated in Marion's death, which the accused, Geoffrey Jones, pleaded not guilty to causing. As they listened to the gruesome and chilling details of the case, more than one jury member was visibly shocked to hear how Marion had met a horrendous end at the hands of a man who prosecuting counsel Brian Escott Cox QC described as a monster in human form. Sat in the dock in a brown suit with open-necked shirt, 
48-year-old Jeffrey Jones listened impassively as in his opening speech, Mr Cox described how Marion Terry, an unemployed school leaver who'd lived with her parents in Coal Valley Road in Hall Green, had just over a year previously, on the afternoon of 18th of April 1985, been out searching for jobs when a card affixed to a newsagent's window had caught her eye. Marion had been especially drawn to the advert on the card, which stated in bold black lettering, Regal gowns, film and fashion require young lady for part-time modelling. Experience not necessary. Apply Mr G Jones, 16 Eggington Road, Hall Green. Tell 744-9006. When Marion, excited at the prospect of paid modelling, had rung Jones, he told her to come around to his house for an audition, I quote, wearing something black, which he was insistent upon which Marion had complied with. Mr Cox told the jury, You may be asking yourselves how he was able to contact young girls and enjoy these sexual fantasies. The answer is that Jones is an amateur filmmaker and he advertised for models. Some young girls get carried away by the idea of becoming a model or a film star. It certainly worked in Jones's case. Then, Reading aloud an extract from a statement given by Marion's father, Stanley Terry, Mr Cox said, Marion phoned up immediately and Jones told her that he would give her an interview. He asked if she could wear a black skirt and said that another applicant had not been suitable because she'd turned up in jeans. I would have taken her around there in our car, but I had to wait in for the gas fitter, so I agreed she could go alone. She never aspired to be a model and would have preferred to be a hairdressing apprentice, but she was fed up and wanted work. Jones, Mr Cox continued, had written a short film script entitled Enough Rope, a bleak and macabre tale about a young woman trapped in an unhappy marriage to an older man who had eventually taken her own life and hanged herself without realising she'd just had a big win on the pools. Jones had explained the premise of the script to Marion upon her arrival and took her up to the loft of his house, which he'd converted into a makeshift studio of sorts, fitting it out with a video camera, recorder and assorted props and sets. Which is a bit of an exaggeration really, it was certainly no Pinewood Studios, as these props merely consisted solely of a number of assorted ropes and the set consisted of nothing more than a noose suspended from a hook fixed into the ceiling, underneath which was a piano stool. Jones had told Marion to stand on the stool and to place the noose, a professional-looking hangman's noose which appeared to be made from an ordinary length of clothesline rope, and which was produced as an exhibit to the court, around her neck. Freaked out with the rope actually around her neck, Marion had balked at this and refused to continue, causing a struggle to ensue between her and Jones, in which she tore at his shirt, bit and punched him. But Jones had eventually managed to force the noose over her head and had then pulled the stool from underneath Marion's feet, leaving her to hang and painfully choke to death, whilst his recording camera captured every single detail of the final moments of Marion Terry's life. Mr Cox told the court, Jones killed her in a fashion so strange and so bizarre that if you saw it represented in a work of fiction or drama, you would discredit the author. Mercifully, 
she died very quickly. At any time Jones could have cut her down or released Marion by using the safety knot mechanism but he did neither of these because what he was witnessing, what he was recording was Jeffrey Jones's greatest fantasy come true, to hang a woman. You don't even want to imagine something so foul do you, that poor girl, awful. About 90 minutes after Marion had arrived at the house, at 4.30pm, Jones was seen by a neighbour of his driving rapidly away from his home, having first placed a package of some sort in his car. It was believed that in all likelihood, this package was the film that he'd just taken of Marion's murder, which Jones was going to dispose of either by posting it to someone, or by leaving it in the custody of a trusted associate. On the second day of the trial, evidence was given that Jones had claimed to police he'd been downstairs at the time and had attempted to resuscitate Marion after returning upstairs to find that she had accidentally hanged herself during the filming of the mock hanging scene. Detective Chief Inspector Barry McKay of Birmingham CID then appeared in the witness box and described an interview he'd conducted with Jones following his arrest, telling the court, Jones told me that Marion was posing standing on a chair with a noose around her neck which she'd slipped over her head herself. She had then asked Jones to go and fetch a handbag which she'd left in the downstairs bathroom as she wanted to comb her hair before he filmed the shot. He did so and when he returned to the attic he found that the chair had slipped and the girl was hanging. He claimed that when he tried to undo the knot in the noose she bit his fingers and kicked him, bombarded him he described it. Now this interview with Jones had taken place following his release from Solihull General Hospital where he'd been taken on the day of Marion's death following an alleged suicide attempt. He'd claimed to have swallowed almost a hundred aspirin tablets in an attempted overdose though this was ultimately found to be a massive over-exaggeration and after his stomach had been pumped and his life saved he'd been released from hospital and taken immediately into police custody. Jones himself next entered the witness box to give evidence, which we shall hear of following a short word from the show's sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now this year has been a hellish one for us all, hasn't it? And understandably, people are struggling. For some, it may just be the effects of the situation the world faces right now. But for others, there may be more specific things. Personally, I worry about my loved ones and making sure that I've got the right work-life balance to be there for them as best and as much as I can be. So whatever it is that's interfering with your happiness, this is where better help comes in. Now to clarify, it's not self-help. What better help does is assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist with specialists available in all manner of issues from depression and stress through to relationship or family conflicts for professional counselling. The service is available for clients worldwide, it's much more affordable than traditional offline counselling, with even financial aid available if it's needed, and you can start communicating in less than 24 hours in a convenient, safe and confidential online environment. You'll get thoughtful and timely responses from a counsellor that you can message anytime. Plus you can schedule your own weekly video or phone sessions with them 
all without the uncomfortableness that goes with sitting around in a waiting room. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. When Jones appeared in the witness box to give evidence, he corroborated to the court how in preparation for the film he was making, he'd advertised for a model on a card that he'd placed in a local newsagent's shop window. Marion Terry had responded to this advert, and after speaking to her on the telephone, a meeting had been arranged for later the same day, in which he'd promised to pay Marion £10 per hour as a modelling fee plus an additional £50 when the film he was making, Enough Rope, had been completed. He admitted to the court that he'd not at first informed Marion that she was to be asked to take part in a hanging stunt for the film, but instead had only told her once she was already in his upstairs studio. Jones explained this off by saying, After all, no girl in her right mind would go to the house of a chap she didn't know from Adam, stand on a chair, and put her head in a noose. Oh shit, Jeffrey. But later, he claimed to have casually told her about the script. In the end, you have to hang yourself. When he said this, he claimed Marion's eyes, I quote, lit up, and she'd enthusiastically agreed. When they'd reached the part of the short film that called for Marion's character to hang herself, Jones continued, Marion had helped him set up the staged noose stood on the stool and placed the noose around her own neck by herself perfectly willingly as if it was giving her a thrill he claimed it was at this point that she told him to stop and to allow her to comb her hair first before the shot was filmed and had asked him to go downstairs and fetch her handbag which she'd left in jones's downstairs bathroom according to jones it was at this point whilst he was downstairs getting her handbag that he'd heard a bump from above. He'd rushed back upstairs and found Marion hanging from the noose, desperately struggling to get free, with a stool on its side about two feet away from her. Jones expressed the opinion to the court that he was unable to tell whether the hanging had been an accident or whether the girl had deliberately kicked the chair away herself in order to experience what a real hanging would feel like possibly in the belief that it may produce a thrill or a sexual release. He told the court, The idiot had the noose around her neck. I saw she'd tried to experience hanging for the thrill of it, in my view. Jones then related how he'd tried to revive Marion when he'd found her hanging. She was still very much alive, he claimed, because when he'd grabbed her by the feet to lift her body to release the pressure on her airway, She'd lashed out and kicked him hard in the chest. All hell let loose was how he described it. He'd abandoned this tack and then instead tried to loosen the tightened knot, but upon doing so, Marion bit his fingers hard and began punching him, I quote, as though she had four sets of hands. She then, before his very eyes, started making gurgling noises and eventually went limp. And it was at that point that Jones realised she had died. He said that upon realising this, 
he went into the bathroom as he felt violently sick. When he returned, he claimed that he was in severe shock as he could not believe that the hanging had happened for real and that his model had actually died. It was only at that point, Jones claimed, that it occurred to him that the camera had been left on and was still filming, and he made a point of switching it off before sitting down on a stool, the very stool on which Marion had been stood moments before, stunned while he tried to work out what best to do next. He claimed in his police statement, I did everything in my power to get that girl on that chair. All this time, he said, his anxiety was exacerbated by Marion's body, which was suspended no more than two feet away from him. Jones claimed that shortly after Marion's death, he lost consciousness for a short time, then came to and then decided that the best course of action available to him would be to take his own life. He fetched a writing pad, then sat down and wrote a dramatic and cryptic suicide note, which read, Murderer, I killed this girl, the innocent girl. I murdered her in hatred. I can still smell the perfume on this young girl. Oh, her parents, her poor parents. Black satin ruled my life, for what turns you on will eventually control you. Jeffrey Graham Jones According to Jones, he had then swallowed almost a hundred aspirin and went and lay on his bed, clutching the Bible, praying and waiting for his own death. Accordingly, he decided then it would be best to go and die at the house of his girlfriend, Margaret Pugh, who was out at the time walking a dog, but who returned home only a very short time later, by this time almost 8pm, to find him on her doorstep. Through sobs, he told Margaret that he'd taken a hundred aspirins because he deserved to die for his actions, claiming that a girl had died in his house earlier that day. He explained that she'd come around in response to an advertisement to do a film stunt, and that during the course of filming, he'd accidentally killed her. That's quite a tale, that, isn't it? Jones's girlfriend, 41-year-old Margaret Pugh, was the next witness into the box, and concerning Jones's behaviour at her house on the day of Marion's death, supported Jones's story, telling the court, He was crying, he was very excited, and mumbling that he'd taken a hundred aspirin. He told me there's a girl dead in the house. He said the girl had come around to do a stunt in a film, and that he had killed her. He kept saying he deserved to die for what had happened. Margaret also told the court that although she classed herself as Jeffrey Jones's girlfriend, they were not lovers in the accepted sense as theirs was a relationship devoid of any physicality because Jones was impotent. She went on, We've never had any kind of sexual relationship because he's told me he's not capable of doing so. He told me that he does not get any feelings of sexual excitement whatsoever. Now apart from Margaret Pugh, almost the entire court, and you guys by now I imagine also, considered this claim to be nothing more than a classic absolute shamble of bollocks. Margaret told the court she had then rung for an ambulance and spoke to controller Michelle Green, who'd logged the emergency call and was the next witness to give evidence to the court. 
She testified that Margaret had told her that Jones was, I quote, in a bad way in her house, having told her that he'd taken an overdose of aspirin in a suicide attempt, and that he would rather die in her home than in his own house, in which there was a dead body of a girl, before relaying what Jones had told her. Michelle then spoke to Jones herself, and a tape recording of this call was played to the court, an extract from which is as follows. On the tape, Jones admitted he'd taken an overdose and added, I have killed a young girl. Michelle replied, That's nothing to do with you, that was an accident. Jones, no, it was deliberate. Rushed to hospital, where he was found to have taken nowhere near what would surely have been an ultimately fatal dose of a hundred aspirins, Jones was recorded as having said there, I'm sorry to give you all this bother. I went to my friend's house to die, but she sent for you. I've also killed a young girl. Her body is in my house. Jones was told that this was a matter for the police, not hospital authorities, but who had subsequently called police to attend and to take Jones's statement, which in essence was the same as that he'd told to the court. Whilst he was making this statement, Police officers had gone around and forced the front door to number 16 Eggington Road, finding tragic Marion hanging from the noose upstairs. A subsequent search of the property revealed a number of evidential items that police had seized, including the film script for Enough Rope, the bizarre rambling suicide note that had been written by Jones, and an equally bizarre and macabre poem, again penned by Jones, entitled 10 Little Beauty Queens, which we'll touch back upon a bit later on. But although the camera was indeed still in place, there was no film of Marion's death discovered inside it. Jones was not forthcoming about its location either. The idea that Marion Terry could have been experimenting with choking, possibly to see whether the sensation of hanging produced any feeling of sexual thrill for her, as Jones had suggested during his evidence, was refuted outright by Marion's former boyfriend Brian Wilcox, a 19-year-old college student. When asked if Jones's claim could have any substance, Brian told the court, Marion was a clean, immaculately dressed and bubbly sort of character, easy to get on with. People found it easy to confide in her. She was a normal girl and certainly had no bizarre fantasies. She didn't even approve of page three girls. We were planning to marry after I'd completed my studies and got a job. She was unemployed after leaving school and I can quite understand that she would have jumped at the chance of earning money as a model, although I think she was foolish to go into the house of a man she did not know who advertised on cards. It was not as if it was a well-known film company advertising in the newspapers. Still, I didn't know she was going there, or I would have warned her of the risk involved that this was some weirdo. Asked whether he considered Marion's death to have been an accident, Brian replied, I don't think so. She would have been too careful to let such a thing happen. The third day of the trial was taken up with the evidence of witnesses who'd both known Jones previously and who'd modelled for him in the past for his other films, and it was here that Jones's bizarre and chilling character was given much more colour for the jury. 
First to give evidence was a former workmate of Jones's, a pastor for a small Christian congregation in Solly Hull, named David Gardner. David had met Jones in the late 1970s when both had worked for Lucas Cookson Limited, an engineering designing company in Cranmore Boulevard in Solly Hull. The two became friendly, enough for the loner Jones, who lived at the time with his widowed mother, to confide in David that he claimed to have a gun at home and how he hated certain sections of society who he termed as yobbos, but also had distaste for Jews and other ethnicities, instead expressing admiration for the ideologies that Adolf Hitler had described in Mein Kampf, which Jones claimed to have read in full several times. Now a copy was indeed found at Jones's home following his arrest, along with a sizeable library filled with books about the occult and black magic. Another subject in which Jones had a vested interest in, just in case he doesn't sound appealing enough with his hanging women and his xenophobia. By early 1981, however, according to David Gardner, Jones had dramatically changed these viewpoints, and in fact now demonstrated more sensitivity and acceptance, particularly towards the Jewish faith. He'd also begun avidly reading the Bible by that time, and was making a much more concerted effort to get to know people and to integrate himself more with other people at work. He had by this time also got himself a new hobby that he seemed really keen upon, amateur filmmaking, even going so far as to join the Solihull Amateur Film Society. Now at the time, David considered this to be a healthy hobby and interest, and encouraged Jones heartily in this pursuit. But shortly after he'd begun this, Jones's mother had passed away in April 1981, leaving him alone in the house the two had shared for many years, and sending Jones into a deep depression, which he required psychotherapy for. Following this, he had accepted voluntary redundancy from Lucas Cookson, and had lost contact with David for several months. But around Christmas 1981, Jones had contacted David again and began going around to his house regularly to spend an hour or so discussing the Bible. But the Bible wasn't all that Jones would discuss during these visits with David because he now began to also openly share details about his sexual fantasies and his inability to physically consummate his relationship with his girlfriend Margaret Pugh, who Jones had actually first met some years before through a dating agency but had ended the relationship with at the time because his mother had disapproved of it. Jones had confided in David that he actually had no interest in women in the traditional naked form, but rather had an obsession with them wearing black satin, an obsession that he'd had ever since he'd seen his mother wearing it when he was a youngster. In fact, black satin was all that he thought about. He even went so far as to confide to David that his obsession meant that he couldn't ejaculate in a normal way, blaming this on him being a victim of what he called black satin syndrome. It's a bit of a step up from rabbiting on about the loaves and the fishes, that, isn't it? David Gardner now noticed that once Jones had confided in him about this problem that he had, he'd find some cause to mention it to him whenever they met. He'd still go on about the Bible and his films and filmmaking, but this black satin obsession had crossed over and begun to dominate even this, with Jones going so far as to claim he'd even had a black satin dress specifically made for models in his films to wear, 
and even mentioned that he'd worn the dress himself on several occasions. Because of course he's going to, isn't he? Feeling uncomfortable hearing this, because you would, wouldn't you? You'd be like, Ugh. David Gardner told the court that he'd advised unsuccessfully to get Jones to adopt a healthier attitude to his obvious sexual problems, advising him to talk to his group therapy meetings about it, and suggesting to him that he destroy the dress to try and rid himself of what had clearly become an unhealthy obsession. But this advice fell on deaf ears and was to no avail, and after about a year of Jones going on and on about the weird way that he came and his black satin fetish, David Gardner took him aside and told Jones firmly not to ever mention it again to him, extremely uncomfortable at clearly seeing the visible satisfaction that Jones was getting from even mentioning it. He was becoming visibly aroused just by the mention of black satin. Gopping that, isn't it, eh? Ugh. At first, after this admonishment from David Gardner, for a while Jones hadn't mentioned it again, and the talk went back to parables and psalms. But by early 1983, he was off again at it, recounting how whilst working as an insurance salesman the previous year, during the course of his rounds he'd gotten to know a former policewoman who he'd managed to persuade to wear, guess what? A black satin dress of course, and to pose at his home for a series of photographs with it on. Now you're thinking, right, who would? And it's boggling my mind also, because he already sounds a right one Jones, doesn't he? And to look at him, if he lived in Royston Vasey, he'd be classed as a stone-cold stunner there. Have a look at his picture on the show's Instagram page or in the Facebook group where I'll put it up there but when you're done listening here have a look at him. He's a proper weird looking oddball. You know the type that when they're born they're so ugly the doctor hits their mum. That's the type. But nevertheless Jones had managed to persuade the woman and bearing in mind this is an ex-police woman to pose for him in this get up complete with a noose around her neck. Jones had told how she'd agreed to pose like this so he'd gone up the stairs with his ready-made noose, tied the rope to the banister, and then got the woman to stand on a stool below with it around her neck. She'd complied willingly with all of this, and he began pulling on the rope, but the woman pulled her end and told him to stop, which she immediately did. Jones then told the shocked gardener that as he did this, he was experiencing orgasm. He furthered that he'd put the noose around the woman's neck because he hated women and doing so released his hatred for them in some way. As the policewoman had been stood on that stool, Jones claimed he'd gotten an urge to kick the stool away from under her, but hadn't. He then proudly showed Gardner the photographs that he'd taken proving this story to be true, before asking him if he would tell the police if he'd told him that he was going to hang a woman and that he couldn't stop himself. When Gardner said that of course he would tell them everything, Jones then said in response, What, tell on me? I'm your friend. Not the kind of oddball that you'd want coming around to your house, is it? And would you pose like that? All I can say is, whatever flicks your switch. And this ex-policewoman was far from the only person to have posed like this for Jones. The court was to hear testimony from another two out of several who had. Many others may not even have come forward. 
26-year-old Christina Atner, a model who'd been one of Jones's previous leading ladies, gave evidence and told the court how she'd starred in a short film he'd made some years previously entitled Safety Last. When the film was completed, Jones had staged a premiere of it at his home, inviting Christina, her husband and her mother to attend. Upon arrival, they were ushered into the darkened dining room of Jones's house, in which rows of chairs had been placed, accommodating some 20 people in all, mostly other members of his film club. Jones had even gone to the quite bizarre lengths of hiring a girl to act as an usherette, serving ice creams and ice lollies to his audience. Now the plot of the short film does sound bollocks, for it simply consisted of Christina, clad in her black stockings, black high heels and black satin dress of course, narrowly escaping death in a number of ways, including dodging certain death from falling under the wheels of a train, being apparently struck and run over by a bus, and finally, by being hanged. Do you see a bit of a pattern here, or what? At that time, Christina told the court, the modelling fee Jones had offered was only £2 per hour. Her mother and her husband had both been aware that she was starring in this macabre movie, and had voiced no objection when she told them that she was going to be auditioned for the film in a private residence by a man who was advertising under the name of Kit Arden Motion Picture Productions on cards that he'd placed in shop windows. Christina then described to the court that upon her audition, Jones had taken several still, colour photographs of her wearing an array of all tight and all black outfits, promotional stills for the film, he'd claimed they were. She then recounted the various procedures that Jones had performed during the filming of Safety Last. Firstly, he had filmed her, always wearing this selection of figure-hugging dresses, usually made of satin and always black, all over his home. He then took her in his car to a nearby railway siding, where he placed her between the buffers of two stationary locomotive engines, and filmed her as though she were apparently being crushed between them. Jones had told Christina to assume expressions of pain and abject terror on her face, but not to scream for fear of attracting attention. He told Christina he would simply dub the screams in later when he was editing the film. For another scene, a scene where Christina was struck by and went underneath the wheels of a bus, Jones took her to a depot where buses that were out of service or in need of repair stood and made her lie underneath the wheels of a stationary double-decker bus. She admitted to the court that this experience had frightened her, and it took some for her to steal her nerves to go through with posing for the shot. Again, once doing so, he'd asked her to simulate a look of terror, which probably she didn't need to try too hard to do, but again told her not to scream, not wanting to bring maintenance or facilities staff running to the scene to investigate. Finally, for the climax of the film, Christina had to simulate a self-hanging. She told the court, he asked me to stand on a chair and put a noose around my neck. I was told to put my head on one side to make it look as though my neck had been broken. Then he got me to climb up the wall to reach a sort of ledge where I had to cling on with my fingers, leaving my legs dangling. He then filmed my feet as they dangled. It was a rather difficult scene to do as the ledge was rather high up on the wall 
had to redo it several times before he got it right. Throughout it, I got the distinct impression that he was enjoying all this very much, but I wasn't enjoying it at all. Mr Cox asked her, Did you realise it was a real sliding noose and if you fell, your life would be in very great danger? Christina replied, I must admit I didn't think of it at the time. Perhaps if I'd not posed for it, Marion might be alive now. The court was also told that following the screening of Safety Last, at the end of the film, a short excerpt from the scene Jones had shot, showing Christina posing dead like this with the noose around her neck, had been used for a trailer for Jones's next film, Enough Rope. Christina, however, was never to work with Jeffrey Jones again, far too unnerved and uncomfortable to. The next person he got to pose for the macabre scene was Marion Terry. Another model who'd worked for Jones previously, 25-year-old Dawn Chambers, also told the court that some years before, she'd starred in a similar short film made by Jones entitled Ten Little Beauty Queens, which illustrated his own version of the 19th century children's rhyme Ten Little Indians, but putting the macabre spin on it in that in his version, ten beautiful girls each met a horrific death as the rhyme went on. Jones had first seen Dawn's picture in a national newspaper posing as a 19-year-old model in 1979 and had eventually managed to track her down and badgered her to appear in one of his films. She said, He told me that all of his family had died of cancer and he wanted to do something worthwhile to make a film before he went the same way. Eventually, I felt that sorry for him, I agreed. He had a black satin dress made for me and I had to wear black stockings with four-inch heels. Dawn too had been paid £2 an hour as a modelling fee, but neither Dawn nor Christina had received any sort of bonus payment, as had been promised, once the films they'd posed for had been completed. Instead, each just received free tickets to admit family members or friends to the premiere screening of the film, which was again shown at Jones's pop-up cinema in his house. Following Christina's refusal to appear in Enough Rope, Jones later approached Dawn to play the same part as tragic Marion Terry was to audition for, and although at first Dawn considered it, perhaps swayed by Jones's offer of £1,000 for the part, and even went through an audition of sorts, ultimately she found the mock hanging too much, too weird. She told the court, My boyfriend held on to me in the chair in case I slipped. Jones wanted to tie the other end to the banisters, and it was all rather scary. This was indeed too much for her, and unnerved, Dawn sacked it off and told Jones to find himself another model. She went on, He told me he was disgusted with me because the film was his life's ambition, and it was for a big competition. I remember walking away feeling rather ashamed, because I felt I'd let him down. Now I know what a lucky escape I had. Lucky indeed, and for a big competition, my arse. The majority of the fourth and final day of the trial was occupied by the summing up, as for the prosecution, Mr Cox gave his closing address to the jury. He totally dismissed Jones's given version of events, denouncing his story as preposterous and a tissue of lies. 
Unlike Jones's defence counsel, Anthony Smith QC, who had told the court, Jeffrey Jones is a quiet, introverted, lonely man, but a monster is what's being offered to you. Mr Cox had instead described Jones to the jury as a sexually dysfunctional man with the most extreme of fetishes, telling them, This is a man with very serious sexual problems and sexual perversions. Almost certainly he cannot perform the normal sexual act. He instead obtains sexual pleasure and relief from fantasies about young women and girls in very real danger of death. His greatest enjoyment is that of visualising young girls in skin-tight black clothing, terror-stricken, in a situation of life-threatening danger. You will have to try to get inside the warped mind of this man and to try and understand his bizarre fantasies. Only then will you be able to see how he could have carried out such a dreadful deed. Mr Cox then, somewhat dryly, stated that Jones had in the past been an ardent, keen and vocal supporter of the reintroduction of capital punishment by hanging. As he looked across at Jones, who couldn't meet his gaze in the dock, he added, But no doubt his present predicament has watered down his views about that. He continued, His principal delight is in hanging, and to hang a young girl was the ultimate fantasy which he turned into horrific reality on the 18th day of April 1985. He lied to the police and to the hospital staff that it had been an accident. That is pure rubbish. He killed her in a struggle to force her to put the noose around her neck as she was stood on a stool. In that struggle, she bit his fingers, which was proven by doctors at the hospital who examined Jones, and by police photographs of his injured fingers once Jones was in custody, which were consistent with being human bite marks. It's true that he took an overdose of aspirin, but this suicide bid was as fake as some of the scenes in his films. Doctors who treated him have stated that the amount of aspirin he actually took was a minimal amount, and would not have killed anybody. Jones sat quietly listening in the dock, not displaying any visible sign of emotion, as Mr Cox continued. He'd made several other films before the final one, during the making of which, Miss Terry died. He wrote six sexual fantasies into the script for these productions, in which Miss Atner, Miss Chambers and two other girls diced with death, whilst enacting hanging scenes at Jones's home until his ultimate fantasy came true with the hanging of Miss Terry in a real-life snuff movie. We have proved up to the hilt this man's sexual fantasies of black satin, danger and the noose. It is something that must have played a very large part in this girl's death, because otherwise, why did he tell a thumping lie to the police about it? There is no doubt that there was a struggle before that noose was tightened around that girl's neck, did he then have the afternoon of a lifetime with a real-life body hanging in his house? It is open to question how many other young women have literally taken their lives in their hands at the mercy of this monster in human form. We shall not know, for no others have come forward, and Jones is not telling. It took the jury of eight men and four women just 55 minutes to unanimously find Jeffrey Jones guilty of the murder of Marion Terry, and he showed no reaction at all as the judge, Sir Joseph Cantley, said that in his opinion, the jury had reached the right verdict. Asked if he had anything to say upon hearing the verdict, 
and when Mr Justice Cantley passed the mandatory sentence of life imprisonment upon him, Jones made no reply whatsoever before being taken away to begin his life sentence. Now Jones had for several years been receiving psychiatric treatment for deep depression brought on following the death of his mother some years before, but the question of his sanity had never been raised during the trial proceedings. He'd been examined whilst on remand and deemed fit to plead, and was ultimately found by a jury to be bad, but not mad. No, the main talking point upon cessation of the trial, what had happened to the real-life snuff movie he'd made of Marion's death. Police were certain that Jones had deliberately filmed Marion Terry's death up there in his makeshift studio once he'd kicked the chair away from underneath her feet. As a filmmaker obsessed with death, specifically young women meeting all manner of gruesome ends, but always coming back to hanging, you'd bet a month's wages that to someone as warped as Jeffrey Jones, it would be the greatest thing he'd ever captured upon film, and no way would he have not filmed it. But no such film of Marion's death was found during the search of 16 Eggington Road, so police contended that he could have either posted the film to an accomplice, Possibly another member of a CD network who was into the same kind of thing, who traded in disgusting, obscene films such as we described at the onset of the episode. Or he could have driven it to the home of an associate where it was entrusted to them for safekeeping. A third option was that Jones could have hidden it in a safe place known only to himself, although this was considered much less likely as there was the risk of damage to the film, resulting in its loss or it of course falling into the wrong hands, like you get much wronger than Jeffrey Jones. He certainly went off somewhere in his car with a package in the hours following Marion's murder. He was seen leaving his house by a neighbour, and it was a good couple of hours after this that he arrived at his girlfriend's house with this bollocks story about his hundred aspirin suicide bid. So where had Jones been in the interim? Following the trial, Detective Chief Inspector Barry McKay was quoted as saying, It was all pretty childish, but it was all part of his fascination for women in slinky black dresses, black-seamed stockings, pencil skirts and pillbox-veiled hats. We shall never know exactly what Jones did whilst that poor girl was strung up for all those hours. It is absolute rubbish for him to say he tried to revive her. No attempt whatsoever was made to cut her down. Mr Cox produced the noose in court and anyone could see that it had not been cut at all. Marion Terry hung there for five hours. I'm convinced that during that time he took photographs and filmed that poor girl. He'd waited all of his life to hang a woman. I cannot believe he would let the moment slip by and I'm convinced that Jones continued to film her as she was hanging there. Afterwards, I think he went to conceal the film the intention being to retrieve it after his eventual release. Now all of Jones's mail was intercepted following his arrest and was scrutinised for months after his conviction, but no clue was ever to emerge as to the whereabouts of the supposed snuff movie he'd made and Jones was never to reveal what had happened to the film, refusing point blank to discuss it. It was a secret that he kept with him amongst his warped and peculiar bents and thoughts. Even in his outgoing letters following his incarceration, 
He still harped on about these fantasies involving women clad entirely in black satin, although predictably, he made no mention at all of his hanging fantasies anymore. Margaret Pugh, soon after Jones's conviction, understandably wrote to him in prison telling him that things weren't working out between them and that they needed some time apart, which in other words meant, fuck off you evil deviant, which is understandable enough isn't it? He did write back to her apparently agreeing to this, signing himself off as Supermaster, whatever that means like. Christina Atner, his first muse for enough rope, also wrote to Jones whilst he was in prison, telling him that she was giving up her aspirations of being a model, that one close shave that she'd had with him was enough to put her off for good. That girl could have been me, she told him in her letter. Jones replied to her, in part, It might have been, but it wasn't. Still, in a way it's all been a bit of a giggle, but I knew that in the end I would have to pay the price for all of the good times. You hearing this? All of the good times. Yes, Geoffrey Jones had no remorse whatsoever for his actions, not one bit. He didn't even seem asked to be in prison really, seemingly completely resigned to his fate. He was even quoted as early as in his second police interview, following the discovery of Marion's body at his home, as saying, I can see the funny side of it. Whatever the outcome, I'm going to write a damn good story about it. You couldn't make up a tale like this, could you? Now, whilst I was researching the episode, I was unable to discover whether Geoffrey Jones remains today, more than 34 years on, as a serving prisoner, whether he's been recategorised or even released. It's not known as to whether he's even still alive today. If he is alive, he will today be 83 years old. And undoubtedly, throughout all of the prison time that he served, he never once stopped thinking about his black satin or women dying in a series of ever-gruesome ways. It was what floated his boat after all, wasn't it? For someone who confided to a friend that he hated women, Jones seemed obsessed enough with them. For example, found in a search of Jones's house after his arrest were a series of diaries, which were all depressingly bleak and void of anything interesting in the most. But a constant theme throughout each was a scoring system that Jones kept of different women that he'd seen on screen or glamour models in the newspapers. As an avid film buff, he would spend hours watching old movies from the silver screen, rating the likes of film stars such as Marilyn Monroe, Doris Day or the lovely Raquel. I couldn't say that in Morgan Freeman's voice if I tried. And if he found a female star of the film or the paper attractive, he would mark her in his diary as WOW in capital letters, double wow, again in capital letters, if he thought they were really something else, and for the likes of page 3 glamour girls, they got a wow, double wow, his highest rating. But the diary entries, which although they're uncouth and they're childish and more than a little bit bleh, would suggest that Jones in some form at least did have some form of normal attraction. Now it was a complete juxtaposition with the poem that was found at his home that I did mention earlier and I said we would touch back upon, the one entitled Ten Little Beauty Queens. Frustratingly, I wasn't able to find the full poem that Jones had written, only an extract from it, but which reads as follows. 
There were five little beauty queens going off to war. A tank crushes one to death, and then there were four. There were four little beauty queens sheltering up a tree. A bolt of lightning frizzles one up, and then there were three. There were three little beauty queens boiling up glue. One falls into the pot, and then there were two. There were two little beauty queens going to the throne. One flushes herself down the pan, and then there was one. There was one little beauty queen all on her own. She goes and hangs herself, and then there were none. I think Keats and Wordsworth can rest easy there, don't you? Now the plot of Jones's film Ten Little Beauty Queens has never been revealed. To be honest, I don't think he was too into really developing the stories or plots here. They were all solely for his own visual wank bank, weren't they? But I can imagine that if he went to the trouble of writing a poem such as this, then he would try and adhere to it as much as visually possible whilst making a film of the same name. And it ended on his favourite fantasy, Hanging. Police did at one time consider whether this poem was some sort of cryptic reference and it actually meant that Jones had killed others, although he was never to admit to any other crimes, and no other unsolved murders or suspicious deaths could be tied to him. But if he had, then you'd have to think he would have filmed them, wouldn't you? All of the films that were found at Jones's home featured models who were traced and thankfully were found to be alive and unharmed. So that day in April 1985, did Jones just reach a point where, it having built and built inside him, he was unable to stop fantasy becoming reality, resulting in the death of poor Marion Terry? Or are there possibly other films, perhaps still out there to this day, showing several other times when his fantasies became real, captured on film for his own horrific viewing pleasure? Remember Jones's words in his letter to Christina Atia? I knew that in the end I would have to pay the price for all of the good times. An acceptance of what he'd done, or a hint to other films? What do you guys think then concerning the case of filmmaker Jeffrey Graham Jones? Was Jones's story a plausible one? And Marion really did seek out what he classed as the ultimate thrill whilst he was downstairs, tragically hanging herself in the process. Or was his version of events just yet another joining the existing absolute shamble of bollocks stories that people we've met before here on The Enthusiast have given? Did he film Marion instead of saving her? And if so, what exactly happened to the film? And this poem, Ten Little Beauty Queens, could Jones have possibly already killed and filmed other women? Or was he just a sad Steven Spielberg wannabe, with a vivid yet stunted imagination, and one who was kinkier than Ray and Dave Davis? So many questions, eh? But in all seriousness, Jeffrey Jones was obviously a very determined, very warped, and very, very dangerous sexual predator. Poor Marion Terry sadly found that out, simply by responding to an innocent-sounding advert, a young girl just desperately trying to find some form of employment. And deservedly for his monstrous crime, Jones was taken off the streets for life, away from his camera and away from his beloved black satin that by his own admittance had dominated his life and cost Marion Terry hers. 
I would love as ever hearing the thoughts and feedback of you guys concerning the episode Enough Rope, which you can do so in the thread specifically up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media links to do so. Know the drill by now guys, always happy to speak wherever. I know it's a horrific story and a chilling case this one, and it's one that does feature one of the creepiest oddballs we've ever met to date on the show. But nevertheless, I hope it's one that you found both interesting and informative. There isn't too much available to research about the case of Jeffrey Jones, but you do work with what you can get, don't you? It is back to business as much as usual here on the show once again now, so I'll be back with the brand spanker of a tale from the enthusiast very soon that I look forward to you guys joining me for, and for which I shall bugger off now as it's wrap-up time here and go and begin prepping. I thank you all very much for joining me here today and all that remains is for me to say that until we next speak I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all the very best throughout these strange and worrying times. I hope you all stay safe and really just try and keep it all together guys and we shall get through this. Take care folks and I shall catch you very soon. Goodbye for now.